Good morning, Southbridge. I hope you had a, a great week this week. We're glad that you could gather together with us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. And uh, for those of you who are guests with us this morning, I just want to give a, a special message to you, um, and that's God loves you. And hopefully you experience that from the people you interact with. Hopefully you, you get that from the songs we've sung, from the sermon that will be preached. But I hope that you know that, that God loves you today. We love you. Uh, more importantly, though, that God loves you. And uh, we're glad that you came and decided to uh, worship with us together this morning. And I would just ask you, if you are a guest with us today, there's one thing we ask you to do. If you wouldn't mind, in your worship program that Lord willing you received on the way in, uh, there's a little card. We call it a connection card. If you wouldn't mind filling that out and turning it in after the service, we have a gift for you. It's actually a double gift. We're going to give a gift because you turned that in as well. And so if you fill that card out, we're going to give a gift to a ministry that rescues people out of slavery, out of labor slavery and uh, sex slavery. And so if you fill that card out for us, you'll bless them. And uh, we want to bless you and give you a gift as well. So if you wouldn't mind taking a moment doing that. Those of you who are uh, followers of Jesus and regular attenders of our church and all those things, you can use that too for prayer requests, that little card that's in there. Or if you're interested in being baptized, had somebody tell me after the first service they said they wanted to get baptized. And uh, you can check that on there. The weather was getting warmer. A couple of days, so hope we're going to be doing that uh, again more frequently uh, when when the weather's nicer. And uh, for the rest of you, they've been around for the last couple of weeks or whatever. We've been doing this series called Acts, and uh, or called Movement from the Book of Acts. And the movement we're talking about is a group of people gathered around a common belief. And for us as believers, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that common belief leads to, Lord willing, a life of radical obedience for Him. And we've been looking at how that's been true in the Book of Acts in the early church. And we're going to continue to do that this morning. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll jump into the passage for this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your truth, um, that you give us truth. You said your, your son is the truth, and that he is the word, and that he came, and, and you gave us him. And you also give us written truth that shows us your thoughts, your thoughts about us, your thoughts about the world, um, who you are. And Father, we want to know you. And uh, I pray, if there's any here that don't know you at all today, uh, that today would be the day they begin a faith journey with you. And I pray for those who know you, God, reveal yourself and your glory, and draw us to you, and have us forsake all other things for you. Have us see how glorious you are, and how worthy you are of our complete surrender. And Father, I pray as we open up your word that you'd speak, supernaturally speak through my lips, speak through the words on these pages, and, and Father God, pierce our hearts and change us, and make us in to the people you desire for us to be. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 is where we're going to start today. If you have a Bible or if you have uh, an app or whatever it is, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And if you were here last week, uh, we were in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. And that's a very popular story, a very famous story at least, Ananias and Sapphira. It's a husband and wife couple who are going to play around with sin and lie to God, and they're trying to get as close to the line as they can possibly get. You know, sometimes we ask the question, how far can I go? You know, can I get there? And God ends up showing them he's serious about sin. And he doesn't play around with that. And if you were here last week, you remember uh, the Apostle Peter asked a question to Ananias. How did you get to the place where you let Satan so fill your heart? How did you get to this spot spiritually, Ananias? And we saw what happened in their lives is they cared more about what other people thought about them than what was really going on in their hearts. And so they didn't deal with their sin, and God showed them sin is serious. He killed Ananias. And then after that was Sapphira. And remember, Peter asked Sapphira the question, how could you test the Lord, seeing how much you get away with, seeing how far you could go? And then she died. People realize that God doesn't play around with sin. And we said, if there's nothing else we learned from that message, is that God takes sin seriously. And we talked about he took it so seriously that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die for your sin and for my sin. He who, be, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that's a great verse if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, maybe you don't hear that phraseology very often. You haven't heard that. Let me explain to you what that means. That Jesus Christ came to earth. He had no sin. 
He was perfect, but he died a criminal's death on a cross. And that was because of your sin, because of my sin. So he who had no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we could then, he could receive our sin, we could receive his righteousness. How does that happen? What happens when we bow our knee to Jesus Christ and ask him to be our savior? And for some of you today, you don't need to hear anything else I have to say. You need to hear that. Today needs to be the day that you trust Christ as your savior. I know some of you have been checking out the church for the last few weeks and not sure about making that decision. I've talked to some of you, some of you I haven't talked to. Today needs to be the day you bow your heart to Jesus Christ and ask him to be your savior. And you receive his righteousness and he receives your sin. That's the transaction that takes place when you surrender to him. For some of you, you've done that. And you see there's still a lesson to be learned from last week. It said in verse 5 last week that, that everybody was seized with fear. And then it said it again in verse 11, that great fear seized the whole church. So all the believers and all who heard about these events and all the other people too realized that God's not playing around with sin. And, and fear is a good thing and it's a right thing. And a lot of times what it does, it gets us from playing around at the line of how far is too far and we run into his arms. But fear can be difficult too. It can be dangerous in a sense because sometimes people get frozen by fear. Uh, maybe you've heard it called before uh, paralysis of analysis, where you're still thinking about the decisions you need to make. You don't make any decision because you don't want to mess up. You don't want to make a mistake. And what we're going to see in the passage we're going to look at today is there were some people that were like that with God. Whether it was a fear of God, whether it was a fear of the commitment, whether it was a fear of hypocrisy, whatever it was, they didn't dare live by faith. But then you're also going to see there were some people that were living a life of daring faith. And that's what we're going to talk about today is daring faith. And I just want you to be asking yourself the question as you think about your own life, when you think about your faith journey, where you're at with Jesus, would you even consider calling your faith journey a daring faith? And we're going to look at it at the apostles. That's what they were living out. Look at it with me. Verse 12, Acts chapter 5. It says, The apostles, and that's the, the 12 guys that represent Jesus, the leaders of this movement, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Verse 13, No one else dared join them. Even though they were highly regarded by the people, they thought highly of the believers, so they wouldn't join the believers. And then verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now, it seems like a contradiction, right? We're gonna, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Verse 16, crowds gathered also from towns around Jerusalem. So this is the first time we see people coming from outside Jerusalem for the church specifically and bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. All of them were healed. It wasn't just like, hey, if you have enough faith, come up here and get healed. Be healed if you give enough money. Come up here. It wasn't like one of those scams, right? Everybody's getting healed. And you see what happened? Is that it wasn't just two apostles. That's what we've seen before back in chapter 3. Remember there were two apostles in chapter 3, and they heal one guy. A guy that was lame from birth, a guy that was crippled, and he walks into the temple, and then persecution comes. You know where they're at? They're in Solomon's colonnade. They're in the same place they were at when they got arrested for talking about Jesus and healing people before. And now there's not just two of them, there's 12 of them. And now they're not doing one miracle, but verse 12 says they were doing many miraculous signs and wonders. And so there's a multiplicity of the very thing that caused them to be threatened for their lives. They had a death bounty put on their heads. If you speak or teach in the name of Jesus again, we'll kill you. And here they are, and they're doing it. And so we see the disciples here living a daring faith. They're risking everything. They're risking their family. They're risking their security. They're risking their comfort. Uh, they're risking all the stuff that so many of us hold so precious. They're risking their own lives. And then you look at verse 13, and it says that no one else dared 
join them. You ever had somebody dare you to do something before? And some of you, you may need to think back to childhood. You know, it's not often you go to the office. I dare you to, you know, change that spreadsheet. You know, it's not that often that happens. But, you know, but so, you know when we were your kid, you remember your like, older brother say, yeah, I dare you to jump your bike off that ramp into that ditch. Now, he wasn't going to do it, but he's, you know, I dare you to jump off the house. <laughs> yeah, that was a bad idea. That's why I'm still up here. You know, this is what they did. Older siblings would do that kind of thing to you. Or maybe you remember, you dare to eat something. You know, I dare you to eat something. No one else so hot. Or maybe it's dog food or whatever it was, like some crazy thing. And go back to some of your childhood memories. The classic example of this is in the movie The Christmas Story. Have you ever seen that? If you haven't seen it, it's on USA or TNT or Lifetime. One of those channels, it's like continually on around Christmas time. The story of a little boy, the famous lines are, you know, you'll shoot your eye out, he wants a BB gun. Well, there's one scene in that movie where there's a, a group of kids, probably a little bit younger than junior high age, and they're out on the playground, and they're talking trash to one another. But it's like back in the 50s or 60s, and so their trash talking is a little bit different. And they're talking about uh, whether or not if you stick your, you know, there's a flagpole that's right by them, and whether or not if you stick your tongue to a frozen flagpole, whether it'll stick. And so one kid's saying that his dad said that it would. And the other kid's talking trash. He's like, you're full of beans. Your old man's full of beans. That's how they talk trash back then. And so they're, they're saying this back and forth. Well, then the kid says to them, I dare you to stick your tongue to it. Then he goes, I double dare you to stick your tongue to it. And then Ralphie, who's the star of the deal, narrates this whole thing. He starts to explain to us playground etiquette. And what happens next is there's a level you're supposed to go with dares. And now it's a, triple, or a double dog dare, then a triple dare, then a triple dog dare. But what happens is the kid breaks all the etiquette and he goes straight to triple dog dare. I triple dog dare you to stick your tongue to the pole. And all the kids' faces are just like, what? He said a triple dog dare? And the kid walks over, because if he's got any courage whatsoever now, he has to try and do this. And so like all of his manhood at 12 is like put on the line here. And he walks up to this pole, and you see him, he's kind of like starts sticking his tongue out, and all these little kids' faces are coming in real close to see if he's going to do it. And he sticks his tongue to the pole, and then he goes to pull away. Like, see, it didn't stick, but he's stuck. And then the bell rings, and all the kids run inside and leave him outside. <laughs> his friend's yelling, like, don't leave me! He's stuck to the pole. He's like, the bell! Like, I don't know what to do! And he runs inside, and the kid's out there flailing his arm, stuck to the pole. Because of a dare. He had the courage to do it. It didn't work out well for him, but he had the courage to do it. And it's easy to talk about dares, and you see it in all kinds of things, silly stuff to extremely serious stuff. Like sometimes we see people with daring courage, and they'll do stuff like put their lives on the line. Many of you probably saw the news this week and the things that took place in Boston with those bombs that went off and almost 200 people wounded, three people killed. It ended up being four people uh, murdered in that whole situation. And, and praise the Lord for our FBI and police that were able to apprehend and, and take, take down one of the guys that, that did this stuff. But you look at the story of what happened. And blood everywhere. If you, if you saw the situation, I won't get into all the gruesome details. Lots of lower uh, extremity, lots of amputees, all kinds of uh, gruesome blood all over the TV. And you watch it, and almost 200 people injured and uh, multiple people killed, and there were thousands of people there. There are all kinds of stories. Everybody that was there had a story. And I don't know if you saw any of the stories. There was, there was one that I read, maybe you saw too, is a, a gentleman named Tyler Dodd. He was an unemployed oil rigger and uh, was there. And when the bombs went off, while other people were you know, grabbing their stuff and grabbing their people and for trying to find loved ones and running away from it, he ran into the situation not knowing if more bombs would go off, not knowing what would happen. And he started trying to help people, people that were injured, people that were wounded. One woman said that she believes that he saved her life. She had experienced some, some dramatic injuries uh, in the lower part of her body, and she was hysterical and thought she was going to die, and he calmed her down. Daring courage. 
And we can talk about it from everything from silly stuff to extreme heroism. Why is it so rare that we talk about daring courage when we talk about faith? Is it because our faith is too safe? I mean, how would you even respond? Just think about how you'd respond if I just said statements like this. I dare you to follow Jesus. Some people would chuckle. (laughs) Okay, I'll follow Jesus. I dare you to live a life of obedience. I dare you to live a life of sacrifice. I dare you to surrender everything to him. I dare you to trust him. I dare you to follow Jesus. What do you even think of? Would I say statements like that? Oftentimes we wouldn't even think about daring in association with faith, but faith by nature is daring. Because faith by nature requires risk. At least from our perspective, it seems like risk. Daring faith requires incredible risk. That's some of the things about faith. And one of the really difficult parts is, especially for us as American churchgoers, I'll call us, uh, for the sake of not really saying followers or believers, but churchgoers, is without faith it's impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It's by faith we begin a relationship with Christ. It's by grace through faith, not your works. It's by grace through faith that you are saved, lest anyone would boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But see, from our perspective, faith oftentimes seems like such incredible risk. Because what happens is we know what the first step is. It's kind of like when your brother tells you to jump off the house or stick your tongue to the pole or whatever. You know what you need to do. You don't know what the result's going to be. And so if I say to you, live a life of sacrifice, what's going to happen? I don't know. I know what the first step is. I don't know what it's going to mean. I don't know if it means, you know, give away all your stuff. I don't know if it means take something that's precious to you and sell it, use it to bless somebody else. I don't know if it means you, you move from here. In this place, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and you go somewhere else, China, or somewhere where where it's not safe to share the gospel, and you move your whole life there. I don't know what it means in the details. I know that it means this. First step is surrendering everything I am and everything I have is yours, God. What happens after that? I don't know. I dare you to obey Christ. What does that mean? Well, each person, it might mean something different. For some of you, it might mean God's been probing your heart to do something, to obey him, and today's the day to finally do it. For some of you, it might mean stopping something. For some, it might mean breaking off a relationship. It's an unhealthy relationship. It's taking you further from Christ, and you need to break that off. I don't know what the details are. I do know that it means this. It means believing that what he says in the scriptures is true regardless of our circumstances, and we trust him. So the first step is trust. But it's incredible risk, because if we say we trust him, what's he going to do? We don't know. That's what faith works like. If I say, follow Christ, I dare you to follow Christ. For some of you, it means bowing your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and surrendering your whole life to him. Starting a relationship today. For those of you, it means stopping all the stuff that's been going on in your life and finally listening to him. What does he want you to do? Rather than strategically planning everything for what is he saying? And no matter what, it means it means surrender. And that's the step. And that's scary. Because we don't know what it ultimately means. Now, ultimately, I guess we know what it means, because ultimately we know eternity. Uh, what's going to end up happening is there's, there's never been someone who physically continued to exist. Everybody dies. There always comes a day of reckoning. For every one of us, we reflect back on our lives. And we all know there's going to be a day where we're not going to say, God, I wish I had sinned more. Or, you know, God, I wish I had done my own thing for a little bit longer. Or, God, I wish I had spent more stuff on myself. You know, I wish I... We know there's going to be a day, but we don't know when that day is. And we always forecast it out further than what it probably really is. And so... We live our lives, and we don't want to take the risk. And here in this passage, we see guys that were willing to take incredible risks. They were putting their lives on the line. Look at them, verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. 
And the people, all the believers, they would gather together in Solomon's Colonnade. Now, Solomon's Colonnade is an interesting place. You can read all kinds of different descriptions about it. It's a large uh, porch-like area, uh, 27 foot or 27 foot high uh, pillars, columns, stone columns that go up to a cedar roof. It's a beautiful place. Everybody could see it. And it was a common gathering spot for believers. In John chapter 10 is where we saw Jesus preaching uh, the sermon of the, the Good Shepherd. You know, I came that they could have life, they could have it abundantly. It's that same spot. It's also the same spot where we saw the disciples when they were arrested the first time. And Peter and John were walking into the temple. There's that lame man there, and at, he's asking for money. And Peter says those famous lines, silver or gold I do not have. I'm broke. Gave it all to the church. You know, they all had everything in common. But what I have I give you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. The guy gets up and he walks. And for the first time in his life, he's able to go into the temple. It's a picture of salvation, of spiritual acceptance. And remember where they're at? Acts chapter 3, verse 11. It says, While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Same place. You know what happens after that? As the Sanhedrin come on the scene. Sanhedrin, for those of you who don't know who they are, the most powerful people in the Jewish world at this time. It'd be the, the Supreme Court of their day. Also, uh, the wealthy, the elite, uh, people that as long as they could keep everything the way it was, then they had life exactly the way they wanted it. They were the popular people, and now these guys are talking about the name of Jesus, and Jesus is becoming more popular. They're also the people who killed Jesus. And they're upset about this. And they don't want these guys causing a ruckus in the temple, because Rome might hear about it, and then they'll lose their position. Uh, they don't want to be not the most popular people. They don't want to lose their wealth. They don't want their life to change. And so they call on Peter, and they call on John, and they don't suggest to them, they don't request of them, they command them, don't teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ again. And then they say, if you do, we'll beat you and kill you. So could you imagine if you were telling people about Jesus and the Supreme Court called you in and said, if you tell them about Jesus ever again, we're going to kill you? What would most of us do? Well, I was trying, God. Guess you closed that door. <laughs> For those of us who have the open door theology, right? Like, if it doesn't look like it's easy, then I guess we shouldn't do it. And you know what these guys say? It's one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 20. And they say, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We have to talk about this. It's changed our lives. And so it doesn't really matter what you do. We have to talk about this because we're his witnesses. We, we witness to the things we've seen, that we've heard, that we've experienced. They didn't know the whole Bible. They didn't have the book of Ephesians memorized. You know why? The book of Ephesians didn't exist. They didn't know the Romans road. They, there was no Romans road. They didn't have Rome. They didn't have the, uh, the book of Rome, or Romans, I mean. They didn't have any of that stuff. You know what they had? They had their lives radically transformed by Jesus Christ, and they told people about it. They had to talk about it. And you see the verse right before this, in verse 19, it says, But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. They did have a couple verses. They had Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 say, Here's what you're supposed to do. Go make disciples, and you've got to win them to Christ first. And then after that, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you can teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And here's the deal. I'm going to be with you the whole time. And he says it another way in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea, everywhere, you're to tell. And so here they are, and picture this scene. They go into Solomon's colonnade. I imagine they showed up first thing that morning. They knew what they were going to do. The very place where they had been arrested before. And not only do they do the thing that caused them to have a death bounty put on their head, they do a multiplicity of it. Verse 12, there are many miracles and 12 apostles that are doing these things. They're not trying to hide this stuff. So are they dumb? I mean, couldn't they have gone somewhere more private? Couldn't they have tried to avoid the Sanhedrin? 
Is this a reckless risk that they're taking here? Is this dumb? Let me ask you this question. Was it dumb of Tyler Dodd to run back into the situation not knowing if other bombs were going to go off, not knowing if he'd lose his own life to try and help other people? Was that dumb? Or think of the, the tragedy that took place before that one that was all over the news, the shooting at Sandy Hook. Maybe you've heard of the heroic teacher there, Victoria Soto, who, who took some of her students and shoved them in the cubbies and hit them in the closet. And, and then when the, the, the murderer, the gunman, came in, he shot her. And she took bullets for those students. So she died to try and save their lives. Was that dumb? Uh, Tyler Dodd, do you know what he says? He says he prays every morning that God would give him an opportunity to help someone, that God would use him as his instrument. That's daring faith. Take a bullet, take a bomb. We would look at that and we go, oh, no, they risked their life. They're trying to save someone else, trying to help someone else. See, the disciples get this. They understand. What we're talking about here is not just more days on this earth. We're talking about eternity. And so what they're talking about when they're sharing the gospel changes forever. Can you grasp forever? Can you, can you even think about that? Like I think about my own head. I get upset out here at Briar Creek Parkway and Glenwood Avenue because that light takes five minutes. I know because I've timed it, okay? So if you see me running a yellow light, that's why, after service today. It's okay to say that before you do it. Anyway. So that's five minutes. I get irritated in five minutes. Some of you get mad at 30 seconds. takes too long on the microwave, right? That's, that's, that's time. Do you ever sing the song... When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days, 10,000 years, no less days than when we first begun. A billion years will be like a week in eternity for believers. A second will be like eternity for those who are in constant torment. Can you fathom eternity? Not to take anything away from what Tyler Dodd did, what Victoria Soto did. They took a bullet to save a life, to prolong some opportunity on this earth. 70 years? 80? No less days at 10,000. Can you fathom eternity? That's what they're doing here. So their mentality is daring faith, radical risk. What are you talking about? We'll risk our lives so that someone's eternity could be changed? It's like a no-brainer. You're going to take my life, and I'm going to tell them about something that could change all of eternity. Yeah. And some of us, we don't tell because someone might not like us. Daring faith. You think about it, and most of us, we know. We know that it's our responsibility to share the gospel. I read a report this week. LifeWay had done the, the largest discipleship study that's been done in a really long time. They evaluated Christians and areas that they'd be maturing in their faith. And out of the eight main areas that they evaluated, the one that all, they scored consistently low on was people sharing their faith. But the stats were interesting if you read beyond just that. Because out of the people that were evaluated, these are Christians who have been a Christian for some time, 80% of them acknowledge that sharing Christ with other people, telling people how they get to heaven and it's through Jesus Christ, 80% of them said it was their personal responsibility. So not just like my church does it or I send money to a missionary and they go do it, or it was like their personal responsibility, 80%. It's great. Okay, that's what the Bible says. We, that, that should, that's true. But then you start to dig into the stats. You know what they say? Out of that 80%, 61% of them haven't told anyone well, how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ in the last six months. So in other words, we know what we're supposed to do, we're not doing it. And there's why questions and things we've got to wrestle through. And the stats get even more discouraging. It was 48% hadn't even invited someone to church. 20% said that they rarely or never, 20%, rarely or never pray. 
Like, there's not much danger. It's not you know like some Old Testament stories where if you pray, you're going to throw in the lion's den or something. We can go in your closet and pray. No one even knows. 20% don't even pray for someone that they know that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Can I challenge you with one thing today? I dare you to pray for someone for the next 30 days that they would come to know Christ. And some of you are doing that. Some of our members do that. I dare you to pray every day for the next 30 days for one person to come to know Jesus Christ. Those of you who are followers of Jesus. 20% aren't even praying for him. Why? Well, there can be lots of reasons. We can come up with lots of things. Uh, some people would say, uh, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to have the conversation. I'm not equipped to do those things. In fact, we, we did a survey of our members uh, last year. About 50% of them said they were very confident or confident in sharing their faith. And then about 50% of them said otherwise. And so one of the things we've done as a church, it's off that survey, is we, we've started a class we call it the Foundations Class. It meets for 10 to 12 weeks at a time. covers different topics. This morning they met um, at the 9 o'clock hour in Theater 12. They talked about uh, prayer and what prayer is and how to pray. Last week they talked about how to study the Bible. Uh, next week we're going to talk about how to share your faith. And I'm going to be teaching in there. So you're all invited. You can be my personal guest next week to Theater 12 at 9 o'clock. And we're going to talk about how, how to do this. Because we don't want people not sharing their faith because they don't know how or how to start a conversation, how to talk about these things. Uh, I'm not going to tell you every answer that everybody's going to ask. We don't know every question they're going to ask. They didn't know either. But you know what they said? God changed my life. So why? Why don't we share? You know what? I think the reason for many of us is because we're scared. We don't have a daring faith. We won't share because they might not like us. These guys are putting their lives on the lines and people noticed. Look at what verse 13 says. And no one else dared join them. Well, the NIV says here, no one else. It's kind of, uh, you know, I read the NIV. I love the NIV. I read it every week here. And um, on my own, that's the the translation I naturally pick. Uh, But they're kind of extreme here in the way that they've translated this verse. In fact, if you have a Bible app, you could switch to a couple other translations. You could read the English Standard Version, ESV. You could read the New American Standard Version. And the way they capture it uh, makes it more clear how verse 13 and 14 read together. They say, none of the rest, which would be a more literal way to translate this, none of the rest dared join them. And so the question becomes, who are the rest? Because verse 14 says that people joined them. And so it's not that no one joined them. It's none of the rest. And so who's this group? And you know who this group is? It's people that were too scared to join them. And it could be for various reasons. Think about the context of what's happened here. In chapter 4, they were arrested and told, if you speak or teach in this name, we'll kill you. And so they weren't willing to put their life on the line. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, they saw God's not playing around with sin. And so they weren't willing to actually forsake their sin. And so who are these people that wouldn't dare join them? They're people that counted the cost and realized, I'm not willing to pay the cost, to lay my life down, to give it all up. And the problem for most of us in churches in America is we don't even consider the cost. But if you look at Jesus, he was real obvious about it. He didn't like soft sell people, bait and switch anybody. He told people the cost right up front. Think about every situation where he calls someone to Jesus, to himself. He says things like, well, you got Peter and Andrew and John and Luke chapter 5, and he says, come follow me, drop your nets, and come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Have you thought about what that means? They're holding these nets. What is that? That's their livelihood. That's their security. That's their safety. That's their comfort. That's the life they know. So you drop the thing that you're holding on to. You come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, I will change your life. I'm going to radically transform you. Do they know what it means? They know at that moment it means we're going to have to trust this guy. Do they know that one day they'll stand with a death bounty on their head, he'll be gone, ascended to heaven, and leaving them there to lead this whole deal? They have no idea. Incredible risk, but a daring faith. 
You see other situations where people count the cost and they say no. Luke chapter 18 is a great example. There's a guy, we oftentimes call him the rich young ruler because he had a lot of stuff and he was a leader. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, and if you wouldn't know what to say at that moment, you need to come to the class next week at 9 o'clock. Jesus doesn't say what many of us would say. You know what Jesus says to him? In essence, paraphrase, he says, you've got to be perfect. Obey all of the law. Uh, don't steal. Don't covet. Don't lie. Oh, honor your parents. Don't murder. And do you know what the guy says? I've done it. I'm good. He doesn't have a clue. No awareness of what's really going on in his heart. Who hasn't lied before? Anyone? Anyone? Good. Good idea. Because <laughs> you'd be a liar. The guy says he's not a liar. You know what Jesus says to him? All right, here's the deal. I know your heart. doesn't say that out loud. Uh, You've got a lot of stuff, and your stuff's really precious to you. So why don't you do this? Go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, then come follow me. Do you know what the text says? The guy goes away sad. Do you know why? He wouldn't dare join Jesus. Because he wasn't ready. He counted the cost. And Jesus tells us we're supposed to count the cost. Luke chapter 14, he tells some stories about this. And one of the stories is an analogy to try and get us to think about it. He says, who would build a tower and not first think about whether they have enough money to finish the tower? And he says, if you started to build the tower and you just laid the foundation and you didn't finish, then people would mock you because you didn't count the cost. Then he tells another story. And the next story is, uh, imagine that you were in charge of an army and you've got 10,000 men and you you hear about who you're going up against, but they've got 20,000 men and you count the cost and you calculate and realize you're going to lose. So what would you do? You'd send your men for a peace treaty. You wouldn't go into battle. How foolish to not count the cost. And then he follows those two analogies with this verse. In in Luke chapter 14, he says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up every... Who? Who? Just the people there that day, right? Anyone, any of you who does not give up everything he has, you're not ready. You can't be my disciple. And oftentimes we say, well, just add Jesus to the mix. I mean, he loves you, he died for you, just throw him. It's kind of like Buddhism. You've got millions of gods, just add Jesus into that deal. And that's not what Jesus says. And then you look at what does Jesus say then? Well, continually through the Gospels, read it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, if anyone wants to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross. What does that mean? It's lost meaning for many of us that culturally, you know, we hear people say things like this. I've got itchy eyes. The pollen dump happened recently here in North Carolina, right? So itchy eyes, it's just the cross I bear. even causes me to shed a tear. An allergic tear, but still, it's a tear. Uh, or, you know, it's humid outside, not today, but some days. Frizzy, I got thick hair, so it's frizzy when it's humid outside. It's just the cross I bear. Neighbors irritating you. That's the cross I bear for Jesus, because he knows I'm a Christian. That is not what this means, okay? I think most of you understand that. I was reading this week, D.A. Carson's a a seminary professor up in Chicago. He writes this uh, about bearing a cross. To take up one's cross does not mean to put up with some minor irritant and fill in the blank with all the ones we could think of. As crucifixion was the form of execution reserved for the most despised and evil criminals. No Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor. It was too shameful of a death. So Roman citizens wouldn't be crucified. It says... That form of death was reserved for slaves and non-citizens. Because what would happen, and what would, the image that would come into people's mind when Jesus would say, take up your cross, is if you were sentenced to crucifixion, is you'd first receive one of three severe beatings by the Romans, the worst one being the flogging that Jesus received. 
and you receive this beating, and then they'd give you a crossbeam, and you'd take it to your place of crucifixion. They'd hang you up out in the sun, and you'd cook. And you were an example to everyone else not to disobey Rome. And then you'd eventually die of suffocation. That's how crucifixion victims died. Exhaustion, they'd lose their mind, or they'd suffocate. And that's the picture people got. It was a shameful death. It was a terrible death. And Jesus is using it as a metaphor here, but it doesn't lose its power because he's still calling us to die. A shameful death oftentimes and a very painful death because you're dying to an old way of life, to live a new way of life. You want the new life that he gives you. See, what we want to do is we want to have both. We want Jesus offers and the benefits of Jesus, but we don't want to forsake the old life. And so we want to keep all this other stuff. One time I had a guy that went to our church, he doesn't go to our church anymore, that taught for crying, Crown Financial. And he said, you know, Scott, when we baptize people, a lot of times we should baptize them where we dunk them and they can hold their wallet and keep it out of the water. Because they're not really surrendering that, is what he was saying. And you could fill in the blank with other stuff. For some people, it's not their money. He's like, if you just take your watch, like, I'm not going to give you my time, but everything else, you know, I'm under the water. And I'm going to give you this relationship. And you kind of hold your stuff outside the water. Do you know what that's like? That'd be like if uh, someone were going to come and propose to you, and say they came and they proposed, they got down on their knee and said, I love you, I want to spend my life with you, I want a relationship with you, I'm forsaking all others to be with you. And then you said back to them, that's great, I want to be in that relationship, but I'm going to hang on to my boyfriends or my girlfriends, and so that that way, if things aren't, like I'm not liking how it's going with you, I can have a fling over here, and maybe we'll work it out or, or whatever, and I'll just kind of go back and forth between them and you, and you know what God tells us? That's how he says that our love with him is like. That he loves us. He's given everything for us. And that the Old Testament says that our sin is like spiritual adultery. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's a, a situation where he tells a guy, I want to use your life as an example of what my love is like for my people. And his name's Hosea. He's a prophet. And he tells him, I want you to marry a prostitute. <laughs> oh, God would never do that. Oh, that's what he does with this guy, Hosea. In the Old Testament, you can read it on your own. He says, I want you to marry a prostitute. And here's what's going to happen. She's going to continue to prostitute herself. And I want you to keep going after her. And I want you to go get her. And you're even, she's yours. And you're in committed relationship with her. I want you to buy her back. We've been bought at a price. I want you to buy her back. And show her your love. And you stay faithful to her. And you keep going after her. And that's what his love is like for us. And somebody sent me a book. I didn't even order it. So God must just want me to read it, right? Just drops it in my lap. Send me this book called Pursued. And it's about Hosea and his wife and the prophet in the Old Testament. It's really about God's love and his pursuit of us. And in this book, this pastor shares a story of one lady. Her name's Annie. And he says, if you met her today, uh, she'd be a typical lady that we'd bump into in RDU, right? She's a trendy mom. Uh, if you saw her, she grew up in the Midwest and a beautiful girl, got good grades. Uh, and what happened between that and what you see now is what would be so hard to believe, he said, if you saw her. He said, because it's drug use, it's alcoholism, it's sexual encounters, unlike most of us could even imagine, got involved in the sex industry, became a prostitute. And like many people, they get involved in the sex industry. When she was eight years old, she was sexually abused by a family friend. And then by the time she was 18, she became promiscuous, gave herself away to a young man. That young man was cheating on her, broke her heart. She didn't know how to deal with the pain, so she started to just sleep around with boy after boy, man after man. And terrible experiences to numb the pain. She started drinking and doing drugs. And then went on a pursuit of God. Uh, tried all kinds of different stuff. New Ageism, sorcery, Wicca, all kinds of different things. Ended up going on a vacation to Hawaii to make some money while she was there. Became an exotic dancer before she knew it. Full-fledged into the sex industry with a pimp and everything. Took about a decade, a little bit over a decade of her life. 
She tells a story. One day, she had overdosed on Xanax, cocaine, and alcohol, and she felt this sharp pain come to her chest. She fell down on the floor, and she thought that was it. Darkness started to come over her. Breath started to slow, and she just cried out. Jesus, if you're real, please give me a second chance. Passed out on the floor. Came back. God gave her a second chance. And she said she was going to keep her end of the bargain. She surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. Found God. He transformed her life. And now she does a ministry where she tries to rescue men that are hooked on pornography, women that are in the sex industry, out of those things. And she tells this pastor uh, from her experiences of leading this ministry she does, she says, the average woman that we rescue out of prostitution, she goes back five to seven times. And here's why. Even though that pimp is wicked, he's evil, he's doing a destroyer, she loves him. There's an emotional attachment there. The average woman goes back five to seven times. Isn't that like our sin? We were, even when we come to the realization, this isn't best, we, go, we keep going back. Why do we do that? And sometimes our sin... It's dirty sin, right? Isn't that what we call Annie's sin? Like dirty sin. Like you don't know, no one can know about this stuff. Sometimes it's like the rich young ruler. We don't confront that stuff in church, do we? You care more about your stuff than you do about people. You, you love your things, and you, that's why you won't follow God. We don't say that stuff. And God knows. Or, or sometimes it's like Ananias and Sapphira. We're so worried about what everybody else thinks, we miss the reality of what's happening in our hearts. And we put on a front, and you know what that's called? It's, it's like if you were to be baptized, you're like, just the opinions of other people. Does someone hang on to those? It's the praise of man. It's my control. It's my plans. It's all those things that we prostitute ourselves to. You know what's interesting? If you look at that verse I read to you from Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, do you know what the next verse says, verse 25? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. You know what Annie says about her story is that while she didn't physically die on the floor that day, the old Annie died. And that's what needs to happen with many of us as we die to that old way of life. What is it going to cost us to follow Jesus? Everything. And that's why none of the rest dared join them, because it's a daring faith. So many times we make it so easy. It's just like, just add Jesus to the mix. He's in there, and keep prostituting yourself. So we don't use that language. You just kind of have all your other stuff too. And that's not what Jesus said. And that's not what people did. And something's happened in the American church. We've dumbed it down so much that do we even have Christianity anymore? Because it doesn't reflect what we see here in the scriptures. And what you see here is, here's the deal. If you're going to play around with God, don't. Like, don't even, you don't, don't, don't even forsake sin. Like, just go do what you want to do. Like, don't, don't play games. He's not into playing games. Like, you don't, you don't want to follow God? You're not interested in that stuff? Then just go do your own thing. If you're, going to, if you're there, be all there. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow him. It's incredible risk, though, isn't it? And isn't that why so few people will do it? Daring faith requires incredible risk. But not only that, we see that daring faith leads to radical obedience. And that's what you see in the next part of this passage, verse 14. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to the number. They've got a death bounty on their head. I'm still, I've counted the cost. I'm in. God wipes people out when they're half-hearted, when they're hypocrites. I'm still in. That's what these people are saying. So you've got the committed, but then look, you still also have the crowd as a result, people brought sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow would fall on them. He's the leader. He's the representative of this group. As he passed by, verse 16, crowds gathered also from towns all around Jerusalem. So people are coming from everywhere. And you've got a contrast here between the committed and the crowd. And it'd be easy to bash the crowd, but I'm somewhat sympathetic towards the crowd because you think about it. If you put yourself in their situation, 
Say you've got leprosy, which is a disease you'd be cast out for. Say you can't see. Say you've got cancer. Say you've got demon possession. Whatever it was, whatever your situation, you can't walk. They didn't have the technology we have. They didn't have the doctors we have. They didn't have medications. They didn't have rehab. They didn't have all that stuff. And you hear, there's some guys that if you can just get close to them, it fixes what you perceive to be your biggest problem, I'd go. Would you go? And look, everybody's benefiting from being around this Jesus stuff. And so they want the benefits of Jesus. But many of them are honest enough that they count the cost and say, I wouldn't join them. Like, I'm not one of them. I'm not in this deal. But I want the benefits of Jesus. Now, there's others that are committed. And that would be the apostles. That would be the people in verse 14. And this is radical obedience because they're forsaking everything else to follow Jesus. They're committed. And then there's the crowd. And it's always been that way. It's that way in churches. It was that way in Jesus' ministry. Think about it. And Jesus didn't neglect the crowd. He ministered to the crowd. Crowds would come around. When Jesus dies, resurrects, and starts to appear to people, he's got 500 to 600 followers. There's 500 people in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's 120 in Acts chapter 2. And so he's got somewhere in that range. But you think of the crowds he ministered to. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? 5,000 men, plus women and children. 10,000, 12,000 people there. Maybe 20,000, some people estimate, there that day. He ministered to them. But you know what happened? They got the benefits of being around Jesus. And then they came looking for him the next day, if you read John chapter 6. And they're looking for him because they want more benefits. They want to eat. And you know what he confronts them with? It requires commitment to follow me. He gives them tough teaching. And if unless you're going to take all of me, you take none of me. If anyone hasn't been given to me by my father, they can't follow me. He says things like that. You know what happens? Many people leave. It says many of his learners, his People that were following him around, they leave him that day. And then he turns to the committed guys, the 12, even though he knows, and John tells us, even though he knows that one of them is a devil, is the word that it says in John, even though he knows that one of them will betray him, Judas, he turns to the 12 and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asks the 12. Verse 68, Peter responds. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal. Not only do you feed us, not only do you answer our, our tough questions, not only do you fill the void in our soul, you have eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Verse 69. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We don't just want the benefits, we want you. And you think about it, and I've got to ask myself the question, would I be content with just the benefits of following Jesus? And just a better marriage? Because if you take biblical principles, apply them to your life, and never follow Jesus, you can have a better marriage. You do better biblical principles on finances, uh, self-discipline yourself with some self-control, prayer and meditation, even though you're talking to no, you don't have a relationship with them. You, know, you get, All those things are, they make your life better. There's benefits to being around Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why some people hang around church. Would you be content with just the benefits of following Jesus or do you want him? Because when you get him, do you know what you get? You get eternal life. You get a relationship with the God who created you. You get a father. Even though you prostitute yourself, who takes you back every time. You get, in fact, a a father that that when you come back to him, he runs to you with open arms. That's the picture we get in Luke 15 of the father and the prodigal son. That's our heavenly father. You get a God who loves you beyond what you could ever imagine. He is the prize. He is the reward. All that other stuff, it's great. New identity, forgiveness, all that. It's wonderful. No condemnation, freedom, amazing stuff. But ultimately, you get him. And that's the committed. They, they, they get him. Why would anyone pay the cost? Why would anyone forsake everything to follow him? Why? And when you can have the benefits without having him, why would you? It's because you get him. 
So you have to ask yourself the question, do you want him? That's the real question. I mean, it's great what happens with some of these people in this situation. Lepers that are healed. That's awesome for them for the rest of that life. Now, when they're in constant torment and hell, separated from God, that's not going to matter. People get fed, great. They went to hell full. People that couldn't see can now see, and people that couldn't walk can now walk, and that's great. I didn't take anything away from that. If you, you get the options, not walk, walk, go with the one that you can walk. That's, that's great. But did it fill the void in your soul? You can see this world now? Does it, does it change the emptiness inside? You have food in your stomach, but you're still on your way to hell? Okay. The crowds get the benefits. They don't get Christ. The scriptures tell us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. That is by grace you are saved through faith. Faith. Not your works. It's not because you paid the cost. It's not because you were willing to go to China. It's not because you would give all your stuff away. It's by grace. Because he offers a gift and you receive it through faith. So I dare you to live by faith. Would you dare follow Jesus? Would you dare live a life of sacrifice? Would you dare count the cost and actually pay the cost? I'm not asking if you've walked an aisle someday. I'm not asking if you grew up going to church. I'm not asking you any of that stuff. So if Jesus said to you today, take up your cross, die to your old way of life, come and follow me, would you dare take that challenge? 